Just a warning, this particular episode contains profanity. took you on your first bike trip. As with most outdoor pursuits, most of us had a mentor, someone who took our hands and showed us how to do it, talked us through the hidden kind of gray parts, and helped us see the incredible things we could accomplish with just our bodies. For Zara Alabanza, that person was Nora Dye. I was at a reproductive justice conference in the Northeast and met a woman named Nora Dye who had just rode her bicycle across country and I had never met anybody who had done such a thing, didn't know people did it. And this was over 10 years ago. And she's a white woman from the Bay Area, which makes it make more sense 10 years later um, why she was riding her bike across the country. But I was like, oh, I've never heard of this. She was like, yeah, um, I'm interested in getting more women to, to bike tour. And I was like, well, if you can do it, I can do it. And the dream kind of started there. She took some women of color and black women on a tour that year that I wasn't able to make. But in 2009, um, a bunch of us met in Washington, D.C. during Obama's first inauguration. We created a collective called the Spoken Heart Collective. And we planned a bike tour from Eugene, Oregon to San Francisco. And on that tour, only Nora Dye and her best friend Elizabeth had ever bike toured before. Everybody else did ride bikes, commute, or recreation, but they were the only two. There was a learning curve, and so we had to find ways to ensure that everybody felt comfortable and make up for the barriers that exist when you're trying something brand new, but also um, a thing that is usually very class-based, which then means um, it's race-based, even gender-based. So normally you see white wealthy men bike touring and now you had a crew of about seven black women and women of color and two white allies riding over 600 miles or preparing to do that. This is Dynamo Jenny, the podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Zephyrs with Adventure Cycling Association. In our last episode of the season, we want to pay our respects to a few of the people that ensure that bicycle touring isn't just an activity for the privileged few. They're the community organizers, bike shop owners, workshop leaders, and everyday people who put a lot of effort into creating spaces that will help usher in a new, more equitable era of inclusivity. Zara Alabanza is one of those incredibly powerful forces of good. She's an activist and community organizer working in reproductive justice, criminal justice, human rights work, and mobility justice, all of the things that intersect with who she is and the communities she lives in. She has been at the forefront of mobility justice in Atlanta in a number of ways. For one, she helps to organize a multiracial collective that centers mobility around the needs of marginalized communities. It's called The Untokening. Second, based on what she's learned from that first trip with Nora Dye, Zara created her own bicycle touring company called Black Freedom Outfitters. Third, and this is just a short list of all the things Zara has her hands in, 
she started the Atlanta chapter of the cycling group Red Bike and Green. After moving to Atlanta from Chicago to give her children a simpler life where they could play in the dirt and grow their own food and thrive in a supportive, diverse community, Zara says she wanted that support reflected in her cycling community as well. One that welcomed anyone who wanted to ride, and one that celebrated Blackness, Black history, and Black businesses. So she started one. I think I really just Googled Black folks and bikes, and Red Bike and Green came up in um, Oakland. It was, it was easy to find. And so when I found them in Oakland, I had met a friend here who also rode bikes, which I was like, oh, another Black person that rides bikes. And we had a conversation about what we wanted to do. I told him about Red Bike and Green. He looked them up. We created a proposal and just sent it to Jenna Burton, who is the founder. <laughs> and they were excited because they were like, the only other chapter that existed outside of Oakland was Chicago. And the person, Ebony Sinai, who started that chapter, she started in Oakland. So we would be the first chapter that didn't have someone from the original crew. And I remember having our first interest meeting and using our logo and just it centering, again, this biking entity that looks very visually, you know, the aesthetic looks really great. The continent of Africa being made out of bikes, having the red, black, and green colors. It's also like a hidden message to folks like, this is extremely Black-centered. And we have politics. And I had this interest meeting, and I want to say like maybe seven people showed up. But they were so excited and so invested in like putting on this first ride. And I didn't know any of them, uh, only Paris, she, she uh, showed up too. Some of the folks are still my dearest friends from that one meeting. And we planned this ride that had 100 Black folks on bikes. And it was the amount of joy that you saw. Like, you can see it in the pictures that exist. If you ask people who were on that ride about that experience, they will have nothing but amazing things to say. And it was just something, again, that the city had not seen. And I, I'll say the city specifically, but I also know outside of the major Taylor clubs, you didn't see a bunch of Black folks riding bikes together in a city. And I think the added value with us um, is that we wore our everyday clothes. We weren't in kits. And we weren't on expensive bikes. You had cruisers, BMX bikes, bikes that they hadn't rode in years, in decades. You came and showed up with what you had and you were welcomed. And so it took the elitism off of what I think has become associated with biking in the United States. We stopped at local Black businesses. There was a local grocery store called Boxcar at the time. And the founders of that grocery store were from the Bay Area, so they rode bikes in their other lives and were happy to support us. And we patronize them. So on our rides, we patronize Black businesses. And then on our routes, we give historical context of the neighborhood. And what you learn is when you're on the ride, all the people that are watching you and how excited the neighborhoods got, how excited people like went and grabbed their bikes and joined us and people cheered for us and honked for us. And it just created an energetic joy that I don't believe anybody on the, the ride had seen from riding bikes together. And that really filled up the folks that were like watching us throughout the city. That's the feel every time. It may not be as grand, but every time we do a ride, uh, we 
produce the same energy between us and the communities in our city and people are learning new things about the city. We're talking about how different and what the changes have caused and done and who's affected. There, you know, there's a political lens on it to keep folks informed, but also to know that, you know, we got the South has always had something to say. And, you know, a lot of Atlanta is, is has a lot of transplants and what I call implants. And so there's history get gets lost because no one's telling those stories. And we find a way to make sure we tell those stories in one way or another. Even if it's from the lens of I've only lived here for 10 years, I can still say that on this particular intersection that didn't exist before and this used to happen. And then we have like folks who are born and bred in Atlanta who share the context with us um, as well. That dates back the history further than I could take it back or anybody who's been a part of, or yeah, that I could take it back. It's great to see that over space and time though, that the energy hasn't changed at all. And when people show up for our rides still to this day, they know that it's something that's gonna make them feel good. And that might be why they showed up. They were like, I had a bad week. I'm gonna show up because I know this makes me feel good. It's a guaranteed feel good experience. I probably couldn't feel anything because I was making sure we were, <laughs> it, it worked. But in hindsight, I it and you got you all know this when we talk about bikes. You know, the person who doesn't ride a bike is like it's just a bike, and I'm like, no, it's not just a bike. Like this bicycle will change your life, and I've watched it change people's life, their lifestyle, uh, their politics, how they want to show up in the world. I've watched more Black folks get on bikes. I've watched people from mainstream bike world think twice and consider us again and again and again because they've never had to and they know there's error in that, especially because we've always rode bikes. Um, it just didn't look the way they wanted it to look. And so although I don't recall the feelings I had then, Red Biking Green is has been a tool that has contributed to very micro level personal change. And I also know very macro level change And that it's a simple tool. It's a bicycle, you know, but I know from my own lived experiences, but from the testimony of so many others that it has changed lives. I didn't know it could do that, you know, so I don't walk away like, oh, I did that. I'm just like, yeah, get more people on bikes because it, it can change. It will change your life in some way. And to the to what capacity is on the individual. The feeling I have now about all that Red Biking Green has done is really about making sure that that story doesn't get lost because it's been extremely impactful and it's been done from a grassroots level and in a very non-traditional way. And I know that holds a lot of weight. So I'm really working to figure out how to document that so it can live far longer than I will or even the entity will, you know? So I want to do a Black Folks on Bike documentary because it doesn't exist. No one moves to Atlanta talking about, I'm gonna ride a bike. You know, that's not why you move here. But the culture around biking and biking as a Black person is very expansive. And that story needs to be told, not only just in Atlanta, I really want to do a documentary that at least goes to the RBG cities and documents what their cities look like because they're all autonomous. They all look different. Their stories are very similar, but shows up differently just because each city is unique. And the importance in, in documenting that is documenting something 
that has brought joy and positive shift to people's lives and ultimately their communities. So often we focus on documenting history that ha- ultimately has a positive outcome, but maybe didn't start with a positive. And so I think, um, you know, people ask, I've been in like fellowships and they're like, what problem are you solving? And I'm like, look, I'm not claiming to solve or that red, bike and green solves any problems. But what I do know is it brings joy. And we absolutely need more visuals about the joy that Black folks experience. And that feels really important to me because I know that joy then trickles into all other aspects of their lives. And then that ultimately ignites, you know, someone to do something else for their community, for themselves. And I think I talk about it more in general than I do do any effort to raise money. Um, Because I also, like I said, I have a full life um, and it's not a secondary desire to create this documentary. I just haven't figured out how to prioritize it the way that it deserves. But when you go to our website, you look at it and you're like, oh, they look dope. What does this look like in practice? What does this community look like in practice? And so you'll, a person can better understand too by seeing us why it needs to be documented. Since Ross started Red Bike and Green, the Atlanta cycling scene has changed immensely. There are all sorts of groups to join and ride with, including another outfitter of Zara's own design. On that first bike tour Zara did down the West Coast, she met her future business partner, Paris, who had also never bike toured before. But Zara says that the tour impacted each of them so profoundly that once they returned to Atlanta, Paris had an idea. Paris and I had done a number of bike tours, and she just pretty much was like, let's start a company. And I was like, okay. Anything Paris wants to do, I'm down for. Um, she's amazing and she's a Virgo, which means she's easy to work with because she knows what she wants. <laughs> and I am always just very like, whatever you say, because I'm not particular. Uh, you want to start an adventure company? Let's do it. It aligns with my entire life. Um, so it was really easy to make the decision. And then we piecemealed it from there. We definitely pulled a lot of like our value. We expanded on our values, which were started at Spoken Heart Collective. We knew we wanted to focus on Black geographies because that's what we would be experts in and it pays homage to our ancestry. And I also look at it as I, we're both avid travelers. And so biking or hiking or climbing through space and time or along Black geographies also was a mode of travel and it's a travel adventure. And so that really resonated with both of us as well. And so it came to be. So we actually use it as a way to take care of ourselves. And what we've learned is that the people who come on the ride, it's also part of their self-care, which is really interesting because it's such hard work. But Black, queer, formally educated women are the folks who tend to come on our, our tours. And they often are holding high professional jobs, high level professional positions. And so coming to be with other Black women in a way that lets them be in their body and not in front of a screen or not managing people or families, only kind of managing themselves feels really good to folks. So we've learned that this is this is how people are taking care of themselves. They're going outdoors and they're going on adventures. And Black Freedom Outfitters is the perfect place for it because it's also still politicked and it's still centering Black folks and Black women in particular, intentionally and unintentionally, you know, and that this space also becomes a mirror of possibility that like 15 Black women who may or may not all know each other can get together and travel through space and time using their own bodies through the South often, do it safely. Uh, It's pretty amazing. And it's like we're building our ability 
to do even more than we already do. Our tools are becoming more diverse. So people are learning how to camp for the first time, cook outside, read maps, resolve conflict. And they do this every day in their lives, but then doing it outdoors with less resources, you know, your cell phone connection is down. (laughs) What do you do now? You know, so it's a grand opportunity to learn so much about yourselves and do it amongst people that you look like and amongst a landscape that has the history. I don't know what year it was, but we had, it was actually the year before we started Black Freedom Outfitters. And she has an entity called Black Feminist Future. So Black Feminist Future, her entity and Red Bike and Green came together to put on Black Freedom Bike Tour. (laughs) And we rode from Atlanta, this Black Mecca, um, to the Gullah Geechee Islands with a stop at the Kambahi River where Harriet Tutman won a Civil War battle. Yeah, so there's a bunch of historical context tied up in that. We were based in Atlanta at the time. It was the merging of our two entities to do this thing that we really love. And um, we created a, our Nick James, um, the gentleman who created the Red Bike and Green logo, created a flyer for us with Harriet Tubman standing next to a bike that also has a sh- the shotgun that she carried while she um, took people under the, through the Underground Railroad. And so it's this epic image. <laughs> uh, and it, draw, it drew so many people in, so many people who you would never think would bike tour. And... We had planning calls. We made sure people were comfortable. They were clear on what they were doing, what they were going to be doing, what they could expect in general. And it was hard. People, we tell people to train before these tours. Nobody does, (laughs) self-included. And I'd be like, girl, you know how hard this shit is. (laughs) And you didn't train and you're responsible for other people. We had a tour manager at that time. So we, we bring a support vehicle. Although our Spoken Heart Collective bike tour was not supported, the infrastructure in, in California and on the West Coast is far better to support bike touring than here in the South. So, and for the safety of folks who have never done it before, we needed to make sure we had a support vehicle. So we had a support vehicle. We even had um, an entity reach out to us who wanted to document this tour. They were so taken by it and couldn't actually participate but she wanted to document it for us. So we had like a little crew and it was like 15 of us and we lost the person on that tour. I think it's a tour we had people quit on us. (laughs) So, you know, we have these routes and we have sweeps and you're supposed to be paired up and then people are grownups and they make their own decisions. There's also like summer rain in the South that is real treacherous. So we got caught in a rain and someone got, they themselves took themselves off the route to not be wet. And we had to send out like a little search committee. So we're actually practicing all the things in our little uh, tour, our green book. Uh, We found her. She was fine. But then there were conversations of how unsafe that was in theory because we're in the South and you're a Black person on a porch in the South and this isn't your house. And cell phones weren't working. So there were a lot of factors that created fear, but everybody was okay. And then we debriefed from that. So something like that comes up. We have a conversation. We went to the Kambahi River and there is a sustainable community there, a community that's been there for maybe 10 years and they're self-sustained off the grid, black run. And it's run by a prince from Nigeria, I believe, or Yoruba culture. And they found out what we were doing and were just taken away by it. And he met us, him and his crew met us at the Kambahi River. They prayed over us, um, did some ritual over us to just keep us protected and uplift us, gave us more history of the Kambahi River that we didn't know. 
Um, and we felt super supported, you know, and then we all did our own rituals at the Kambahi River to honor Harriet and our own um, lineages. And then we rode on over to St. Helena. I always stopped at the Penn Center, which is a cultural center for Gullah Geechee folks. And then we headed over to St. Helena Island and camped out there. The camping was primitive and horrific because of rain and mosquitoes. It was like Jurassic Park. I mean, there's so many stories. On that trip, we also, I think one day, couldn't make mileage. I had to call my friends from Atlanta. They had to travel two different cars to come trek us all the way to wherever our next stop was because we couldn't make the mileage that day. And so that was that tour taught us so much. And I think it was a lot of those lessons that made us feel confident that we could actually build the company Black Freedom Outfitters. So what we often thought was an entry-level tour at like 300 miles is not. It's not an entry-level tour. 150 miles is an entry-level tour, you know? Since then, we've never had to call on our friends because we don't we don't have our own support vehicle because, again, finances. But since that tour, we've never had to call on our friends to come pick us up 150 miles away so that we can ultimately make our mileage. But it makes for such great stories, and no one is ever mad because we've been transparent. Um, they've been a part of decision-making. And I would say that that was one of the most memorable tours, for sure. (laughs) Black Freedom Outfitters runs tours whenever possible, sometimes a few times a year and sometimes only once. But Zura says that the opportunities provided to their tour groups goes intentionally beyond any commercialized or commodified touring service. And she witnesses it playing out regularly amongst her writers. So you prove to yourself, and not that we need to keep proving to ourselves, but you prove to yourself you're able you're physically, mentally able to do anything that you want. Again, I don't think we need more proof of that, but folks haven't rode bikes since they were 12 years old and they finish these tours. They build stronger community. They watch what their body is able to do. They learn how to be in community under stress, like literally in this moment, stressful times with people that they're not actually in community with. So like this created community and you're solving high-level challenges together, and no one hates each other afterwards. You're developing bonds that are unbreakable and not matched by any other bond that you've built elsewhere because of how you're building the bond. You get outdoor experience. So you're learning how to be in the outdoors, camping, cooking, what that takes, even down to how do you budget for such a type of tour. You have space and time in the outdoors to work through whatever you're working through. And as you all know, there's, there's so many places, but working through your shit on a bicycle, (laughs) you're surprised, you know, you like, you, you, you just never know how resolved you can become after riding 40, 50, 60 miles on a bicycle, how things get into perspective. You know, I think those are some of the very surface levels people benefit from going on a tour with us on top of like, the, the Black geography component on top of the fact that doing something that the mass says Black people don't do, let alone women, doing it in the South with the stigma associated with like roaming freely in the South, like being a wanderer as a Black queer person in the South on a bicycle is unheard of, especially when we have the history of the South. And we've never encountered anything negative. No, not one person. And that's a lot of things. People are like, oh, that's scary. What about this? We've never encountered anything. We've encountered, you know, and you know, bike touring does that. People are just taken by you. So, so many things get erased or become 
invisible at for that moment because you're doing something extraordinary, you know? And I just, I always think about, it. I'm like, yeah, we ride our bikes from hundreds of miles through the Southern landscape as black folks. What a journey. And there's nothing like it. And you, you learn yourself, you learn your people um, and it's a way to pay homage. So those are some of the surface level benefits that I think people gain from riding with us. And you're taken care of. Again, I've not been on anybody else's tour, but I just don't believe folks are held and encapsulated in the way that we hold and encapsulate folks. It's like, you know, we're taking care of our sisters, we're taking care of our brothers, and that care absolutely shows up. In addition to low-cost tours, Zara wants to ensure that the equipment for recreating isn't a barrier to access. She's already got a good start on a community gear library, but she's looking for donations so she can provide a complete package to any individuals, groups, or other organizations who might need it to get started. They can email me at blackfreedomoutfitters at gmail.com. We don't have anything set up. Uh, again, labor and all the other things we have going on doesn't make that as easy to do as it should be. And you would think after all these years I would have done it, but I haven't. So emailing us there at blackfreedomoutfitters at gmail.com is ideal to just have a conversation. Because I also think it's really important to have a conversation about the nuance and level of importance that something like a gear library is and what it would do for folks. And yes, that can be conveyed in writing, but I'm also like, let me let me talk to you. You're interested in giving? Let's talk about why and what that can, you know, how that can be adequately used. So I think an email is the best way. And if at any point in time I get something set up on the internet, then that would be available too. A huge thanks to Zara Alabanza for her time. If you're interested in getting in touch with Zara or are interested in supporting any of her current endeavors, you can find appropriate links in our show notes. In 2013, Leah Benson came up with a crazy idea to open a bike shop. She'd never owned a business, had never worked in a bike shop, but if there's one thing Leah knows well, it's how to create community, and that's exactly what she felt a bike shop should be. The result became Gladys Bikes, a gender-inclusive bike shop in Portland, Oregon, and this is how it started. So the idea for the shop came after, I'm like trying to pick my words because I always want to be nice about things, but the reality is like, we can't always be. I had a really crummy bike shop experience. I was in a shop and um, there was a man who was essentially just like talking down to me and talking about how cute I looked while I was working on a bike. 
and just all of the things that you would think people should just know not to do because they were so stereotypically bad. And um, this same day, I happened to be going out for drinks with a bunch of friends of mine who also, you know, were involved with bikes to a certain degree in some ways. And I was sharing about my experience. And then slowly, it seemed like every single woman around the table was just going around to talk about her shitty bike shop experience as well. And I was like, well, this is just unfortunate that all of us have had this experience. And some people were even saying it's what kept them from wanting to ride their bikes. So that night I just decided, I'm like, well, there should probably be a shop where it feels better than this. I think we deserve something more. And um, for some reason I was like, I'm the right one to do that. Yeah, even though I'd never worked in a shop or owned a business, it seemed like a good idea that night with a few beers and then the next day still shockingly seemed like a good idea. And so I ended up quitting my job within that week and just starting the planning process for the shop. To be honest, I think there were already a lot of things going on in Portland that related to supporting women on bikes. There are so many cool organizations and specific programs that were encouraging women to get out there and ride. But the thing that I wasn't seeing was a specific place like the importance of place and building community is huge in my life, and I think I wanted to see that within the bike community as well. Knowing she wanted a place for people who didn't feel comfortable in a traditional bike shop meant that she needed to create a non-traditional one. So without a ton of existing examples to go on, she started asking around. The most important part about the construction phase for the shop was learning as much as I possibly could about what people would want from such a thing. And so I went out and I did surveys. I had focus groups. I had one-on-one -on -one interviews. I showed up at every event that I possibly could and was just trying to soak in everything that people would offer me in terms of what they might be looking for and what they would want from a shop. I do not remember which conversation it came from, but it was one from one of those very early conversations at the idea for the saddle library, which is this big lending library of bike seats that we have. It came from that in terms of a bunch of people talking about one of the reasons they didn't want to ride, their seats were uncomfortable. And I remember that moment just kind of scratching my head and being like, really? I'd never thought about that because at the time I was like 26 and my body was endlessly pliable and any seat seemed like it would be just fine. But in those conversations, it was fortunately a bunch of people who were at different stages of their lives and from a bunch of different walks of lives to provide me with different perspectives on what a shop could be and how to serve the needs of a really wide swath of people. I should say the most important part during the construction phase was like learning about business, but that came later. <laughs> Ordering, inventory management, who needs to know about that to own a retail store? In talking to people, that's how I decided what bike brands we were going to carry, what like the colors of the logo were going to be. Um, the language I would use for the shop, I came out with this manifesto earlier on of the things that we believed in, and I got help with that. We do quite a number of custom builds from the frame up, and that came from this process as well of people talking about not being able to find what they were looking for and things that fit their body. From that, also, there became this really strong focus on bike fit, realizing that if we were going to be talking about creating a more inclusive environment. Part of that meant acknowledging that people have bodies and really bringing that to the forefront of the shop and realizing that bikes are really uninteresting. It's really the people that ride them and the bodies that engage with them are the interesting part. So from those groups, we learned about 
how to really put the focus on people and their bodies and comfort. I think um, if I wanted to build a shop just for myself, I probably wouldn't have needed to ask a whole lot of other people what they wanted. And by asking for opinions, I knew I wanted people with different perspectives than my own. Figuring out like the markers of people's identities and like thinking clearly about like what, what made my own identity and looking for people outside of my own experience was was going to help me, I don't know, get a broader picture of what a shop could do for more people rather than just what it could do for me. My strength as a business owner has always been my ability to admit that I have no idea what I'm doing. So really early on, I was like, well, I continue to need more help to figure out how to actually make this right for the people who I want to invite in. So um, I continued to have those focus groups and it became known as something that we called the Gladys Advisory Board or GAB. I held them kind of like monthly board meetings as you would a nonprofit. I had people come to the shop. I would buy food. I would kind of tell them about how the shop was doing, um, ask them questions about like what their perception was and how they thought we could be doing better. And over the years, it's kind of shifted in terms of it used to be really broad in general. And the question that I was basically asking people is, how do I run a business? And then as I got that down a little bit more, the questions became more precise. Like, how do I um, run a business that is going to be expansive in its thinking about gender? How do we make sure that we're not just inviting in cis white women? How do we make sure that we're looking at things with a racial equity lens? Yeah, this group has always just been so helpful to me. And like I said, over the years, it tends to change out. Like every year I'd recruit new people just to make sure that we're continuing to speak to a variety of voices through the shop. Leah had the input she needed. She was overflowing with ideas and purpose, but the reality of running a business became apparent pretty immediately. The first day at Gladys. Oh my God, I want to be able to speak in flowery language about how amazing it was and how I felt like this embrace from the community and I just knew it was right. But the reality was I for some reason decided to open in October. And I know it's different for all places across the country, depending on the climate. So I will say October is known as the month where the bike season ends in Portland, not exactly where it starts. Also known as like not a good time to open a shop. Beyond that, October of 2013 actually ended up being the third rainiest month on record for the state of Oregon. So not a time when anyone was going to any bike shops, much less like a brand new bike shop with a questionable location that no one had ever heard of before. So the first day was pretty anticlimactic. Like people came in, but I was like, oh no, this is, this is not right. And the way I always describe it is that those first few weeks felt like I had planned myself this really extravagant birthday party every single day. And then like none of my friends bothered to show up. It was, it, it was really depressing. <laughs> and I remember the first space that we were in, we were in a small location for the first six months. It was kind of in this hallway and it was just windows. Like you were completely on display. And I just remember feeling like my failure is completely open for everyone to see. Everyone can see that I've opened this business that no one is coming into, which was kind of like the realization of all of my worst fears. Fortunately, I think I can say this because we know it changed. It got better from there. But at first it was, it was not exactly the dream start that I had hoped for. I think the change happened gradually and had to do with a number of different things. But first and foremost, because 
I was just not willing to admit defeat ever. I was going to make this work. And so that meant coming up with a never-ending stream of new ideas for how to get people in through the door. We did all of these wild events in those first few months that were really fun. We had this dress like your bike party where we had a photographer come out and take pictures of people who had dressed like exactly like their bicycles, which was adorable. We hosted parties for marriage equality there, I remember. I had a party where there was this really rad woman who was coming out with a a new fashion line that had nothing to do with bikes. But I was like, yeah, you can use my shop for that. We had it be a stop for alley cat races. I was just open at any single time that I could get anyone through the door to do anything. And in addition to that is when I really started to put energy into building up the brand online, honestly, through social media. And I think I'd be remiss if I didn't say that that was really a part of the success of the shop. Because I think when I first set out to open the shop, I had these lofty ambitions of like, I'm going to create a brand, you know, Gladys the brand. It's not just going to be about me. It's going to be about this bigger thing. But then I realized no one cares about brands. People care about people. (laughs) And so pretty quickly, the story of the shop became a pretty open story of my story of starting the shop. And it turns out that people respond to vulnerability pretty well. And so I think I got comfortable using social media as a medium for storytelling about the shop. So people felt like they were in on something. It wasn't just a place that they were coming into to buy a tube or a light and then go on their way. It was a story that they were buying into that they were becoming a part of. So they walked in feeling like they already knew me, like they already knew the shop a little bit and like they were ready to be a part of it all. The new people that were coming in were predominantly women. Um, I think people were getting that part of my initial marketing push that this was a shop for women. However, one very important thing that I noticed is it wasn't just women. I think within the past decade especially, we've really come to fortunately understand gender in a much more expansive sense beyond the binary. And I noticed fairly quickly that it was not just cis women that were walking through the door. That has continued to change over time to the point where when we first opened, I referred to the shop as women-focused. And now we talk about it as being a gender-inclusive space to acknowledge the fact that it's not just cis women that are walking through the door. We have people who are all across the gender spectrum that are coming through because it's not just cis women that don't feel called into traditional bike shop spaces. From the beginning, I think my customers knew more of what they wanted from the business than I knew what the business was. And I'm really grateful that I had those advisory groups and such to tell me because it turns out women-focused was not, was not enough. While we all know the saying that it's impossible to please everyone, which is totally true, Leah wasn't going to take criticism of her shop sitting down. Instead, she confronted it and learned from it in ways that feel quintessentially Leah. I was online, and I think I was like Googling the shop, as you do, you know, and I wanted to see what people were saying, and this blog came up, and it was not great. It was written by another woman in town who was just blasting the shop, honestly, talking about the ways in that it was so not respectful to women and that it was infantilizing and that it painted this portrait of women and that we couldn't do things and that we all liked pink. And I was reading it and I was just like, no, this is just so wrong. It's exactly what I didn't want it to be. I'm like, I don't think she's ever been in here, you know, but it was clearly somehow some of the message that I was sending was not really 
getting through to folks in the way that I wanted. And um, I did the boldest thing that I've ever done is I got done reading her blog post. And then I sent her an email, which what I wanted to do was like run and hide underneath the covers. But instead, I emailed her. I'm like, oh, hey, (laughs) so I came across this blog post. Um, Do you maybe want to get together and grab a beer sometime? And so we did. And it was one of the best experiences I've ever had. She's become a good friend through it. And she was able to talk to me about the ways that she perceived how anything women focused just tended to be watering down an experience to make it easier or softer or not as much. And I think she was fearful that that's what I was moving towards with it. And um, I think we were able to talk about it and have just some really great in-depth conversations about feminism in general and about what it means to acknowledge and respect femininity, but also acknowledge and respect that like, not all people who identify as women are going to buy into the same notions of femininity and move forward from there. And I think I think about her all the time still. Um, and she definitely helped inform a lot of the messaging through the shop and thinking about who we're calling in and why and making sure that we are paying attention to people who haven't traditionally felt it called into bike shops. We are paying a lot of attention to beginners who are just getting their start. But how do we also make sense that we're respecting people who have been here, who are thoroughly a part of the community and doing it for years and making sure that they're still feeling seen and heard through it? For instance, one of the things that um, I said when we opened, I was really strong about in my initial business plan, is that there would be absolutely nothing pink in the entire shop. Um, I was really strong on this, pushing against that notion of shrink it and pink it for women in the industry. I wanted to make sure that I was showing respect to women. And to me, that meant not making assumptions that they liked pink only, so there would be no pink. And as you might imagine, within you know the first month, people were coming in asking for pink things, whether it be pink pedals or pink handlebar tape. And each time I give them this like self-important speech about how, well, we don't carry pink because it's demeaning to women. And then I could see these women who were coming into my shop to ask for what they wanted, um, the look on their face when I told them I didn't carry what they wanted because I didn't think that it served them. And hearing the words come out of my mouth made me realize just how disrespectful I was actually being. The problem is not pink. The problem is, you know, the assumption that people only want pink all the time. The reality is that pink is like a really great color. It's awesome. Okay? Like... People should have pink if they want to. If that's their only option, that kind of sucks. But they should have the option. And I think sometimes when we're talking about wanting to make sure that we're not that we're not doing the shrink it and pink it things, we become fearful of like quote unquote traditional femininity. And we decide to put that in the box of something bad. And we judge people for wanting things that are traditionally feminine, realizing that's not right either. People are allowed to like what they like. And that is not my problem. The way that we've dealt it is dealt with it is that we just have a full range of products that cater towards all different types of people in terms of how they want to represent themselves in the world. Some things are going to be women specific as they're branded. Some are going to be men specific. Some, you know, are going to not have a gender assigned to them, which is great. But our um, philosophy through the shop is that we'll have all of these different products and we will make no judgment on who wants them. For instance, we carry brands that are marketed nationwide as being women-specific, but if someone who walks in and who does not identify as a woman wants it, that's awesome. What we care about is that they're getting something that fits their body and makes them feel awesome, not that they're adhering to some correctly marketed gender role. 
the time we talked with Leah, she had decided it was time to move on from Gladys, that it was time for someone else to breathe new life into her creation, and she had just finalized the sale of the shop to a friend the week before. So, as Leah moves on, she has one final hope for the legacy of Gladys Bikes. I love bikes. I absolutely love them. I love the experience of riding them. I love introducing people to them and taking them out on their first ride after not having ridden a bike since they were a kid, of helping them find the perfect bike for their body. But if I'm being entirely honest, the lasting impression that I hope Gladys leaves goes beyond bikes. A lot of times I'll describe the shop as an idea that just happens to traffic and bicycles. And for me, that was honest. The part that was ultimately the most important was to create a space where a whole lot of people could feel like they were a part of something, to help build a community, to take a, a place that was traditionally seen as masculine and exclusionary and create a space that felt good for everyone. I guess I hope the lasting impression that Gladys leaves is just the notion that really what bikes come down to are the people who ride them and the community that we can build through them. Thank you, Leah Benson, founder of Gladys Bikes, and good luck with your next adventure. this episode and the series. And holy cow, you made it. We want to introduce you to Brianna Cohen. Like the two stories you just heard, Brianna is using her skills to open up new spaces within the outdoor community. And it really gives us this shining hope, but also plenty to regret, that the cycling world has so much more room in it for people than we've been led to believe. Full disclosure, we met Brianna because she was the recipient of Adventure Cycling's Greg Seipel Award for Young Adult Bicycle Travel. Here's Brianna. I first started cycling when I was a kid, and I really loved it because it was a fun activity for my siblings and I to do together. So we'd ride around the neighborhood to nearby playgrounds, to the parks, the fields, and play around when we got there. And I really enjoyed spending time with them. And cycling kind of gave us something to do together and also a way to get to those different places. We would go to this playground that wasn't too far from my house, but when, once you got there, there was like a back trail and you would weave through all these different, like, uh, gardens and fenced in areas and it was always kind of a surprise with what would be blocked off or if there would be a tree in the middle or not uh, so it was always a different adventure and surprise what we came across but that was really fun. Brianna says that her relationship to biking has grown and changed as she has. She remembers the thrill of trail riding as a kid and the freedom of carless streets as a young adult in Bogota. 
It started when I moved to New Orleans. I would ride laps uh, around Audubon Park and also along the bayou with a couple friends there. And then I also spent time in Bogota, Colombia, and Sunday ciclovias were my favorite day. That's when they shut down the streets to cars, and so it's only open to people that are riding, running, skateboarding, jogging, skipping, dancing through the streets. And it was a really great break from the crowded buses and Transmillennial system that I was used to during the week. And I also felt more connected to the people in city when we were all riding together in the open air. And then coming to Austin, I began commuting by bike. And so that was the favorite part of my day. Uh, and after a couple months is when I attended the Women Trans Femme workshops with B-Cycle. I knew of a, a lot of people that had gone on bike tours, but for me, everything really resonates and becomes more real and possible when I'm like having conversations with people, especially from people I can relate to. And so I unintentionally got really inspired through that uh, second bike touring workshop. <laughs> so I found that there's something really powerful about finding yourself in a space where you don't feel like you're the only person that's like yourself. And so I loved learning with the other women there and trans and femme. Everyone was so supportive and relatable and inspiring and was just very comfortable. And so I gained a lot of confidence in my own skills and abilities. And by the end of it, I could fix my chains and gears and change a flat. And Sylvie really created a trusting space for everyone. So she set expectations at the beginning. She brought snacks. We took lots of breaks. And so everyone felt so comfortable and just relaxed. Yeah. <laughs> after that workshop, after like hearing more from Sylvie, I just planned to go on the next bikepacking trip that I could. And I didn't think I was ready to go on my own because I don't know, I, I really liked that group environment with all the people in the workshop. So uh, Sylvie mentioned that there was a Cycle East bike camping trip. And so Cycle East is one of the local bike shops here in Austin. And that's where uh, Sylvie had been working when she was living here. And so she connected me with another woman that was leading the trip. And so I met with the woman and I just kind of told her like, hey, this is something I really want to do. What do I need to bring? Because I had no gear. I only had my road bike that I like commute on every day to get to work. I also didn't know anyone else on the ride, but I wasn't as concerned about that because I don't know, I was just really amped to, to get going and get out there. So uh, I had zero clue if I could even ride the long distances that we were doing. And I didn't even really know how long we were going to ride. I think I just ignored that whole aspect of the trip because maybe I thought if I paid attention to it, it would uh, be intimidating. But within the next day, we just started riding. And uh, I really rode. We did 75 miles in one day. And that was the first time I had gone anything close to that amount uh, with a fully loaded bike and on gravel roads with my skinny <laughs> road bike tires. Yeah, by the end of the day, I was just so amazed that I did it. I did that first day. And the conversations we had, uh, it was a small group of us around six people. The conversations that we had along the ride were 
really lovely. And I felt like I learned a lot about the people I was riding with and we really connected and we had this endless time to just be with each other. It was a great day. (laughs) Brianna says that all of these experiences shaped her idea of what was possible for her in her adulthood. And when she won the Greg Seipel Award, she already had a plan. It was right after I first moved to Austin. I was looking for different rides to go on and it was my birthday in May in the springtime and I did a bike ride with this group called Lend Your Legs and they're a social cycling group in Austin that rides tandem bikes with Texas School for the Blind and visually impaired students and so I thought it would be a really fun way to spend my birthday evening uh, doing that bike ride so I just went for it and yeah the ride was awesome it was such a fun crew and after that I just started going every week. Yeah, it's been about two years now. (laughs) Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired, they have access to a fleet of bikes, a fleet of tandem bikes specifically. And so those are the bikes that we use each Monday for the rides. And then one person who is a part of the school, so one of the students will ride as the stoker, and then they get paired with a regular everyday rider in Austin who wants to join in. Usually we're all volunteers. You sign a waiver beforehand. And then once everyone's fitted on the bikes and gets to know their partners, you do some introductions. Then we head out for a ride and we ride to one of the parks nearby. Basically, the school provides this programming for the kids while they're students. But after they graduate, there's not many options for people who are visually impaired to ride or even to do many other recreational activities for that matter. So that kind of stuck with me in some way, just thinking like, oh, (laughs) A shame that after being part of this program, then they they don't get that opportunity to ride as they once did. And I know a lot of the kids look forward to to those rides each week. I'd say that's one of the limitations. The goal of the award is to spread the love of bike travel and you get to choose whatever project you want to do. You get to choose a community that you want to do the project with and it's encouraged that you do it with communities you're a part of. And there's like so much room for creativity too. And so just the the act of putting on the outreach project itself was really exciting to me. And I definitely thought back to how Sylvie did her workshops and thought, oh, it'd be really cool to do something similar to that. Pulling it all together, I remember the first time I rode with the kids with the Lend Your Legs ride, they expressed such joy and freedom and thrill to be riding and it was that same feeling that I felt when I went bikepacking for my first time. Pulling it all together, it just was the first thing I could think to do that I wanted to do. And kind of just push past what the normal idea of people cycling is. Um, and pushing past those normal boundaries and the notion of what people think you can or can't do. Fearless Tandem was two parts, a workshop and then a group ride. And so I wanted the students to have the space to explore the idea of bike travel and then go out for a ride and also join together with the community. So the students that participated were part of the exit program at Texas School for the Blind. The thought of working with them I thought was really cool because, okay, after they leave this program, then they'll have the tools and resources or at least some some start and some basic idea of how they can continue biking after 
they graduate the program. So the cool thing that resonates with me about biking and bikepacking, all forms of cycling in general, is that it's such a sensory experience. So you're feeling the wind on your face and you're outside feeling the sun on your skin and you're feeling so tired and sore because you're biking endless miles. And so I tried to focus on a lot of the sensory experiences in the workshop and also to make it as interactive and engaging as possible for all different types of learners. So really having the students touch different areas of the bike, hearing the sounds of the chains switching gears. We covered the basics of tandem riding, safety and verbal signaling, cycling resources for people with visual impairments, parks and trails conservation, packing necessities. We covered the principles of leave no trace. For part of the workshop, the students shared their favorite memories spending time outside. So some had the chance to ride before, but not everyone. So we really just tried to focus on how people engaged with outdoors in general. For people listening that maybe haven't ridden a tandem before, it actually isn't that much different from riding a regular bicycle. Um, the key part is just communicating with your partner. And when you first get started, you have to work out that balance and control and once, once you work out the little kinks in the first five minutes, you're really set to roll. So over 70 people joined for the ride. It was so cool. There was bikes and tandems filling all the streets we were riding through. So it was cool to have a large group come together and the weather was really warm. It was breezy. Uh, the students were singing songs with their tandem riders and everyone was smiling while they were riding and pedaling along. And so we rode from the school to a park stop and it felt like everyone was just making friends with each other. People had known each other before, people had never met, and it just felt like there was such a fluid conversation uh, across everyone. And it was just a lovely way to spend a Monday night together, yeah. For Brianna, the experience of assisting someone else in enjoying the simple pleasure of a bike ride was really captivating. She's hopeful she'll be able to put on more workshops in the future and even share her lesson plans with other cities so that sister programs can be initiated across the country. I think it would be really cool if other cities could do it too and get a hold of some tandem bikes. And I can really, for me, I did a lot of research on how to go about doing this. And so I'd love to share it with people so that they don't have to reinvent the wheel and they can just kind of piggyback off of what I did, but also make it into their own. To me, cycling has the ability to help cultivate habits of claiming space and connecting with others and also just sharing all these like small joys of life. And so some people haven't had the chance to cycle before for whatever reason. Yet it really takes the experience of riding to discover those joys for yourself. And so I feel like it's important to open up the space. And if we're all actively including others, uh, we can learn a lot from what we can do, from what our bodies can do, from what our minds can allow us to do. And so providing that space and opportunity is, I think, really important. And also, it's all about surrounding yourself with people and communities that push you forward. And so I think everyone has the chance with these experiences to push each other forward. So that's been kind of what's directing me.
For her first workshop, Brianna invited two of her friends, Cheyenne Meyer and Daryl Garza, to speak to the attendees. I'm Cheyenne Meyer. I live in Austin, Texas. I am a runner, a triathlete, a cyclist. Running was my primary sport throughout high school and college. I ran cross country. Back in 2016, I started guiding visually impaired athletes. Um, I saw one of my friends doing it on Facebook and I thought, well, that looks cool. You know, I like working out and I like helping other people. So how can I get involved? So um, I met up with a local triathlete who was blind and he basically taught me everything that I needed to know. Um, what do I need to tell him when we're running? How, what do I not need to tell him? Um, what things need to be communicated? And then I started getting into guiding visually impaired and blind runners all the time. Actually learned how to pilot a tandem bike because there was a triathlete who wanted to do a triathlon with me um, as a, a, a blind competitor. I was able to start racing uh, triathlons with athletes who were visually impaired or deafblind or blind. If it's my turn, then I, uh, <laughs> so there's, there's no visual cues here. <laughs> uh, no, just kidding. I've been biking all my life. I think I got a bike when I was like four and my parents could never get me off of it. I still remember his little red bike. But for me, it was just kind of a getaway. As a kid, you know, I was limited to just going up and down the street. You know, I, was, uh, I thought, you know, my parents had the boundaries and stuff like that. Um, but as I got older, um, in my, my younger teens, um, I'd ride around all, all around the little city that we lived in. And I had a little speedometer, so I'd always wonder how fast I could go and, you know, track my mileage and stuff. And I'd average about 16 miles a day. Um, every day after school, I'd just get on my bike and go somewhere. I kind of stopped for a while and then I moved out to the country. And it was just you know, more and more unsafe to, to be on a bike, especially on the, the back roads. So I hadn't really been on one until I think I was about 29. Uh, so from about 13 to 29, I hadn't touched a bike. Cheyenne and Daryl have been working together to provide Daryl, who went blind in adulthood, with the chance to go for bike rides again on a tandem with Cheyenne at the helm. Uh, when I met Cheyenne, I had, she had told me everything that she was involved in. And so I had come up to Austin before I'd moved back over here and went for a bike ride. And it was incredible getting back on the bike. We uh, went to a trail, it's uh, off of Ladyburg Lake, just to have the freedom and you know, the cool breeze coming through and uh, just be able to pump my legs again and you know get somewhere. And you know, it, at this, this particular moment, I didn't have to worry about hitting people or hitting the brakes or anything like that. It was all up to Cheyenne. So, um, there's literally no worries, <laughs> and it was fantastic. <laughs> one, of, one of my best memories of last year. It made a much uh, as much of an impact that I remember the day it was June 9th. I think we have pictures of me like covering my face, or, like having my hands up in the air and stuff like that, just having fun with all of it. And I think I had some pretty nice pink shades too. <laughs> and she's awesome at describing all the scenery and all the people and there's crazy stuff happening. So I still get to experience the world. You know, visually just through her description and it can be pretty pretty comical <laughs> i like to talk a lot so he gets visual descriptions of everything because i just like to talk <laughs> i i talk a lot too so it kind of works out if, if she's not talking it's me and just rambling on about whatever comes through my mind so <laughs> it really was a fun day like you know I, I was just expecting it to be just like a a normal ride you know but just getting to see it in a new way from somebody who hadn't really been out on a bike in a while um and, and enjoying the place that I normally like to ride, you know, by myself. It was just, it was, it was pretty cool. 
So um, I actually met Daryl through some mutual friends on Facebook. Um, I'm pretty plugged into the uh, blind and visually impaired community um, in Texas and around the United States, just because I've been involved with uh, guiding visually impaired and deafblind and blind athletes um, since 2016. So I've met a lot of people, a a large network of uh, both athletes and guides. And so I saw that we had a few mutual friends. And so I added him and, um, you know, we started talking about athletics and things that we were interested in. And he let me know he was moving to Austin. And I asked him if he was ever interested in maybe riding or running together. And so when I had moved to San Antonio um, and I was still really new to the whole blind uh, world, I'd, I'd gone blind um, a month after my 18th birthday, uh, completely blind. We were ended up, uh, we're running a relay marathon in uh, Corpus Christi area. It's in South Texas. And it turns out she was running the same race. I was like, hey, like, you know, we're, we're starting up a group and um, we're trying to do an all blind group, but some of our, our friends couldn't make it and we didn't know enough blind people. So Cheyenne was telling me, you know about these tethers that she uses and i just hang on to people's shoulders and would run so if someone's like really tall you know it's murder on my shoulders so i have to switch switch sides and you know the more it progresses the more i'm switching so she told me about these tethers and she had brought some over for me to, to try out in the race you know she she made an effort to come see me to to bring me this and help out and it felt like i'd known her for so long just how easy conversation flowed and he was all bored so then we we went for it and um, we went several times after and it, it was just it was a really great you know partnership and and matchup because we're great friends but also we can enjoy something like exercise together i don't really have to do anything except for sit still you know, just don't put my, my arms out and uh but it's still you know just gives you something to think about and breaks the monotony of you know of of all of it it's, it's all the responsibilities on me <laughs> It's kind of just opened up a lot of, you know, just open up the world for me and just getting to experience Austin more. Um, you know, there's, there's so much culture and so many different things here in Austin. Um, and you know, to have someone who, who likes it, you know, who likes to talk, who describes things very well. If there's something that's important to me, I ask Cheyenne to describe it, like if it's pictures and stuff like that for, uh, for Facebook. Because I, I like the way she, you know, her attention to detail. So for me, it's a real treat um, just getting to go around. And I don't care where we're going, just you know, tell me about the grass or, you know, just, just whatever, you know, it's made things really, really, really nice for me. Um, that's a nice, you know, bit of, I guess, camaraderie, uh, and stuff like that. And just, I guess more of a bond. They fall, you fall. So you're going to experience it together. <laughs> Instead of a trust fall, you could just call it a trust ride or something. Yeah. <laughs> Especially when you're going downhill. Oh, definitely. I mean, communication, first of all, it's it's the most important thing on a tandem because you have to be in sync. You know, are we doing a left turn? Are we going to speed up? Are we going down a hill? Like you have to communicate or if the person in the back doesn't feel comfortable, like, can you slow down? So for me, I would say being on a tandem is so much more enjoyable than just riding a bike uh, by myself. And getting to experience the outdoors with someone who doesn't see it the same way that I do is a really interesting perspective. So getting to share the love of, you know, what I what I love to do and getting to share my experiences visually with someone else, uh, it's, it's made exercising that much more enjoyable. Right. And it's inevitable. On a tandem, you're going to fall at some point and you just have to laugh it off. <laughs> I've got such an easy, easy job that I'm just sitting there. So if she gets tired, I, I try and take some of the extra brunt 
or you know just just provide extra power if we need it you know, it's, it's something i can contribute because she's doing that for me so for me it's never really occurred to me i know there's people around but i'm kind of like an out of sight out of mind kind of thing so if i'm talking to cheyenne nobody really exists unless you're chosen like hey that person got a massive wedgie or you know, <laughs> or just something funny or you know just point something out it's like oh hey people um or you know we're always dodging them but i've never really thought of i guess the visual aspect but if anything i'd say like if someone's looking at us going by they're like they're having a lot of fun you know look at them <laughs> and look at look at that guy's smile yeah, that that would probably be the extent of it <laughs> one thing i've noticed is that tandems are obviously aren't as common as single bikes. And so you may be uh, passing by someone who's never seen a tandem before, or maybe they've seen it, but they've never seen people actually on them. So it's pretty cool to see their reaction. Like, wow, that's really cool. Uh, There's some people that don't realize that Daryl is visually impaired. And so they think that we're just a married couple just out for a leisurely ride. (laughs) And so, uh, yeah, there's all kinds of reactions. Um, There's been times when I've been on a tandem in a race with an athlete and people are like, oh, y'all are cheating, you know, and they don't realize that the person on the back is visually impaired. But it, it really is cool because people don't really think about I guess if they haven't met someone who is visually impaired or, or have someone like that in their life, they may not realize that, you know, people who are visually impaired can cycle. It's just a little bit different than someone who's not. To get, I guess, more information, if, if you're new to blindness and don't have many resources or don't know, you know what to do, there's government agencies. Um, every state has their own, you know, different acronym for it. But in Texas, it's uh, the Division for Blind Services um, through the Texas Workforce Commission. They have tons of information you know, on, on sports or jobs or whatever, you, you know, what have you. And uh, particularly here in Austin, there's the Chris Cole Rehab Center for the Blind. And uh, they actually have a department that's the rec department. Um, like I mentioned before, blindstokersclub.org is a place for you to go, whether you've been on a tandem ever or you've never been on one. Um, you can add in your information if you want to be a pilot. Uh, there's some resources learning how to be a pilot or how to be a stoker, you know, and, and then matching up with people in your community. Uh, and there's also organizations that link up uh, athletes who are visually impaired with uh, guides for races and events. Um, a couple that come to mind would be my home team, Team Catapult, in Houston, Texas, but they work with athletes across the United States, um, athletes with disabilities of all kinds. Um, the United States Association of Blind Athletes is another one. They uh, they have adaptive sports, um, everything from uh, blind golf to uh, goalball, which is a sport just for people who are visually impaired. Um, they have a lot of resources for cycling and triathlon. Um, there is... Dare to Try, which is a group based in uh, Chicago, but they work with athletes with disabilities across the United States. Um, same with ICANN, Alliance, and Paraguide. Um, these are all really great groups to get involved with if you're wanting to learn more about being a guide or working with a guide. And the really cool thing about the community is that once you work with one guide, usually that guide or that athlete who's visually impaired knows someone else 
who's in the community and you just start to build this network where you know your your name is known out there a little a little bit more so that you know oh I've worked with so and so before you know they're awesome they live in Texas or they live in wherever and you should link up with them and see if they want to do this race with you or if they want to go train with you while you're on vacation or whatever so it's really cool to to build your network that way um, everyone in this this community of guides and and visually impaired athletes is really tight-knit and we help each other out it's freeing um, just for that, that little bit of time you know you can say you know i mean th- the first time shine and i rode we did 12 miles and um it, it didn't feel like it at all and i was i was, I was blown away it's like you know we, we did that in you know, this amount of time so yeah i'd say do yourselves a favor and, and get on a bike Thanks to Brianna, Cheyenne, and Daryl for taking the time to share their stories with us. So that's it. That's season one. Thank you so much for listening to Adventure Cycling's first ever podcast and to all who contributed and made it come to life. You're the reason we tackled this. And if it works and people like it, maybe there will be a season two. If you want to stay connected to Dynamo Jenny, there's a monthly newsletter with stories like the ones you've heard in this podcast. Sign up at adventurecycling.org slash newsletters. If you have comments, thoughts, ideas, you can always email us at dynamogenny at adventurecycling.org. Dynamo Jenny is a project of Adventure Cycling Association, hosted by me, Jessica Zephyrs. Produced by Becca Zook and Jessica Zephyrs, a.k.a. The Z Team. And Becca Zook edits the show. She's an all-around incredible human. Congrats on a job well done, Becca. Special thanks to Alex Strickland. Seriously, Alex, your collarbone is begging you. No more berms. Music from this episode is from Blue Dot Sessions. Daniel Mergan made original art for this episode. You can see it and so much more on our website, adventurecycling.org podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope we get to talk again real soon. <laughs>